You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I am Kyla Lee, and with me, back again by popular demand... Paul Doroshenko. Popular demand. Well, you know, one person said they liked you, so (laughs) I don't know how many people we have listening, so we'll call that popular demand. For all you know, the people could be tuning in in the hopes that I'm going to be on the show because I provide the comic relief. Uh, Sure. (laughs) You keep telling yourself that. Uh. Never helps you sleep at night. All right, this week we've got a lot to talk about, but I think the first biggest news thing that we should cover is the federal government's approval of the Abbott Sotoxa. Official now. Yep. I so mean, it was like a done deal before. Yeah, it was a done deal. I mean, as soon as the government says they're going to approve it, you know that it's going to be approved because it's already been decided we, in the back rooms. Oh yeah, to we're going to look at this over the next it's month the and make the decision. Consultation period. So there was a bunch of lawyers across the country who wrote to the government and said, "Well, hang on, you shouldn't be approving this thing so quickly because um, you're going to have some problems with it. Uh, look at the problems with the Drager that came out originally, and of course the government just ignored all that." Well, of course they did. And the other thing that uh, people have requested, and uh, I don't know that we requested it, we might have, we, re- we got it for a bunch of the material for the Drager, uh, but was there um, the testing that they did to make the initial determination that this would be one of the approved drug screeners? Yes, and uh, we didn't specifically request it, not you and I, um, but our little group of defense lawyers who were working... Um, with the scientists on the challenges to the reliability of the dragger and the testing of that, um, requested it. So as a group. Yeah. And the government to date date has... Spearheaded by Stephen Biss, I should say, that effort to request those things. Stephen has been sending out the emails. I see that. Yeah. Um, And and so far, not not a response from the government. I would pay really good money for the focus and energy that Stephen Biss has. Well, yeah, I mean, like he's... Fork over cash. You have a lot of focus and a lot of energy, but, know, you know, but he's, he has more. he's focused on specific things. And I, you know, I'm kind of waiting to see the device because I know that once we see it, we will find out the problems. But, you know, the problems are out there. All you have to do is look around. We discussed it in a blog post on our website because, of course, it wasn't always called the Sotoxa, the Abbott Sotoxa drug thingy thingy. So what you're saying is you have to know where to look. Well, what you have to do is uh, recognize this device has actually been out there for a while and it's been rebranded it's been renamed. It was called the Allaire DDS2. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when it was the Allaire DDS2, it's been out there for at least six or seven years on the market. There's people who have done research in it and they've found that it has problems. And the problems are not necessarily the temperature problems that the Drager Drug Test 5000 has, but reliability? Questionable. Um, yeah. I mean, the in Canada, there was two no, we of did the a, units. We did a pilot study. This was one of the devices that, that was, was pilot piloted. studied. Yeah, I know. It was one of the ones that was, they gave their best one to the uh, police in Canada, their best units, and said, go out there. Here, we're so confident about it. Here's 10 units, or whatever they gave them, and said, go try them out, test them. 
and then come back and I'm sure you're going to want to buy our screener. I just want to say, where was our phone call during that? Yeah, how come they didn't call us? And say, have at her. This is the best thing on the market. Bet you can't fool it. Yeah, well, it turns out if you look at the study, all you have to do is go into the, like, there's this little spot uh, when they reported on these things and it said, note, two of the Allaire DDS-2s gave a positive reading every time, even with police officers and people who had not used any drugs whatsoever. Now, this was back in 2016 that they did this pilot project. But there's no indication that they've changed anything about it no. except the name. Yeah, except the name. the name. So we wrote a blog post about it, just something short to, so people recognize and connect the two names because, you know, the government has approved it as a Sotoxa. Um, the studies that have uh, identified the problems with it were when it was called an Allaire DDS2. So if you want to actually find some information about it on the internet, start looking for the Allaire DDS2 because that is the same device, same unit. Now that's, I think, a problem. Like if you have a device that's always giving a positive reading, the only way that they were able to detect that at that point in time, they're doing a pilot project, they're randomly screening drivers, they're not expecting to see numerous people who are, um, uh, who are testing positive for cannabis, A, because they're doing it on the basis of, hey, do you want to provide a saliva sample and see what happens? And by the way, we'll let you go even before we get the results. So we'll never do anything to you on the basis of them. And secondly, there was no provision in law that would allow them to use it. Thirdly, the people signed a waiver saying, you know, um, the, the police can't use this against me, or I guess, to, not a waiver, but like... Acknowledgement, Yeah, an acknowledgement. And, uh, and finally... Uh, the legalization hadn't happened. So the access to cannabis issue was arguably <laughs> more difficult. Not really. Well, but. the interesting thing is that, you know, the police are supposed to be carrying these units in their car, right? So the Drager, you know, everybody looked at it and said, well, this is kind of too big to be carrying around in your car, maybe in these check stop vans in Alberta and things like that. The Allaire or the Sotoxa, whichever name you want to use, I, I would prefer that they picked one, but... Um, this is more of a, a handheld thing that... It's not. It's not. I'm going to stop you there because A, you interrupted me and I was making a point. And B, it's not a handheld unit. I'm going to tell you why. Um, the uh, the Allaire, I, I was trying to say, all of those things that the police had going on, they only realized they were getting multiple false positives because they were getting multiple positives. And it wasn't fitting the patterns that they were seeing leading up to that. But now that we're in a post-legalization world and police have their green-colored impaired driving glasses on, if they're getting multiple false positives from people who they reasonably suspect, already reasonably suspect, have cannabis in their bodies before making the saliva demand, all they're doing is getting essentially what is confirmation bias. They're not going to rule out those false positives like they did in the study and go, hey, that's weird. Hey, Steve, come over here and test their buddy and go, oh, shit, this thing's fucked. That's the point that I was about to make. I was just thought you weren't getting there quickly enough. <laughs> so they're at the roadside during their study and they're testing 10 people and they're like, fuck, we got 10 people just tested positive. Maybe we should test it on ourselves. But if it's driving around in a cruiser mm -hmm. uh, and they're testing, oh, one guy tonight, oh, another guy tomorrow, somebody else is using that four days on, four days off, um, they may not realize that it's just giving false positives for weeks, months. Who knows? 
Yeah. Um, and also, because there's no calibration, apparently. So there was two. Well, they they actually the um, the Sotoxa does have a uh, standard test that you can use apparently on it, but you know what the procedure will be with that, who knows? But the point is. Did the people who, you know, Parliament, I don't know, I guess is sold on this somehow. I don't know how they get to that point. It's recommended. It's going to come ahead. It's going to come about. Did they Google Allaire DDS2 or did they Google Sotoxa? Because if they Googled Sotoxa, uh, they're not going to find the same things. Yeah, well, um, I mean, you see all these people that have come out to talk about their thoughts on the Sotoxa since its approval and uh, you know the consistent conversation has been there's not that much information available to it uh it's manufactured by a device in in quebec called abbott well no actually it's a worldwide company called Allaire that was acquired by abbott shortly after it was announced um that the government was looking at this the Allaire dds2 for potential approval so now we have it being a Canadian company, so I guess we'd have sweep to... Sweep it under the rug. Yep. Sweep it under the rug. Uh, no, it's a big concern. Concerns me greatly. Now, moving on to the next part of that is that uh, us trying to get it. So, you <laughs> know, everybody knows that we managed to get the Draeger Drug Test 5000, and it's been useful for us. And, you know, of course, we did our study on it, and, and Jan Semenoff is... Uh, uh, releasing that information as he goes through it and thinks about it in his journal counterpoint but um, the uh, there's there's problems with it it's in some respects really like a fantastic piece of equipment uh, but of course it got it's a lot cool. of press it's really cool I mean it's really cool it's an impressive piece of technology uh, but it also got um, some bad press mm -hmm. and people are concerned about it and um, you know, here we are, we were able to get this device, we were able to have a national discussion about the device as a result of the fact that we got it, and if we have people who are charged on the basis of it, we will be in a position to properly address it because we got the device. Well, we, we are in that position in cases that we're already bringing, like our challenge in Nova Scotia. Exactly. So we are, you know, we have it. Um, Kyla's already, you've already lectured on it, I think, at one point, haven't you? Uh, Did you give a presentation on it? Probably. Yeah. No, I'm giving one in September to the U.S. DUI Defense Lawyers Association. I know you're doing that. I thought you'd already presented somewhere. Oh, I probably did. In any event. <laughs> it all um, blurs together. The, um, we can't get the, uh, Sotoxa and, uh, so far. Mm -hmm. uh, and and uh, not for lack of trying. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they just don't want to sell it to us. And just like Drager didn't want to sell us a drug test 5000 and Intoximeters doesn't want to sell us an Intox ECIR2 or a Datamaster DMT, yeah. um, here we are. We've we had, can't get it. Yeah, and we've, we've, we've tried pretty much everything that I could imagine thus far that we can do that's ethical. Stephen Quinn on CBC was posted a question the other day about what does QC stand for and I said quality control um, or something like that uh, I'm inspector number 16 but <laughs> you know that is what we do I mean that is a lot of what defense lawyers do is that we are quality control we're quality control for for inadequate policing problems in policing identifying problems in policing which is the thing that really irks me because when i look at the videos of the abbott sotoxin sort of circling back to your comment that it's handheld it's not it's still just like the dragger needs to be kept level and still at the time it's doing the analysis and unlike the dragger it actually has more moving parts 
there's three parts to it. There's the unit, and then there's a cartridge, and you take your cartridge at the beginning and you unwrap it, and you stick it into the unit. There's one opportunity for contamination right then and there. Yes. Or fuck up. Yeah. Or yeah. I didn't. I didn't think about it because yeah. I haven't turned my mind to it to the same extent as I did. Then with the you cartridge. take a but swab. Yeah, you could contaminate that part. You could contaminate the cartridge. Yeah, and then there's a swab that you take, and the swab has like a fluid inside it that's come. I guess mixes with your saliva sample once the cartridge. Really? Inside so the cartridge, inside the so unit. So you're exposing yourself to a fluid. Well, this is one of the things that happened during the pilot study. Two people put the swab in their mouth when the internal fluid from the swab was leaking and they were exposed to swallowing the fluid and Alaire's response was oh don't worry it's non-toxic we're looking into what that could possibly do to a person they don't know what the fuck it can do to your body if you ingest it they just think it's not toxic but what is it they have to tell us what it is no they don't they have to tell the Since police when well, do obviously they, tell they us? have to tell the RCMP what it is yeah, but since and, when? And the lab. Yeah. Well, they're not going to tell us. The they're not going to tell us the until they cross-examine. Free in there. Well, right. how many? Well, how many people are going to get sick from that? How many people yeah, could, could kill somebody? What if they have an allergic reaction yeah. or something like know. that? You don't know. I know. Well, you don't what, know. You know. What do they do when they're taking you to the hospital? Um, and, and you think your allergic reaction is just symptoms of drug impairment because all of a sudden your face swells up and your eyes are red and watery and you're going, you're slurring your speech because your tongue's swelling. Next thing you know, you're dead because of some fluid you're allergic to that's in the in yeah. the uh, the tampon in the in the mouth swab for an uh, sotoxa. Yeah. So all of this potential for contamination. You're handling so many moving parts, so many opportunities for cross contamination, so many opportunities for malfunction, and danger to people potentially. That's I don't want to drink random chemicals. I grew up on the "Don't you put it in your mouth" song. The I'm sure it's a wonderful song, Kyla. It is. If you have never listened to the Don't You Put It In Your Mouth song, do yourself a favor, go on YouTube, search Don't You Put It In Your Mouth, and then send me hate mail when you can't get it out of your head for six days. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> it's so good. I usually end up with islands in the stream in my head. Mm. Islands in the stream, that is what we are. Um, the Drager also has fluid, but the fluid comes out of that little cap. Yeah. So that little cap so you're not exposed is, to it. pops onto the thing and then uh, I think pushes your saliva down into that, um, to those uh, testing strips. Yeah, they smoosh it all together. But this one, you're sticking the fluid inside you. Great. Mm-hmm. Good times. Yeah. Well, you, thanks a you, lot, Alair Sotoxa. Can you get a an approved drug screening device refusal charge if you see fluid leaking from the swab and you refuse to put it in your mouth or if you taste something coming out of it yeah. into your mouth you taste the fluid in your mouth you pull that thing out you're going to get arrested yeah. cuffed taken back to the detachment you're going to get charged you're going to get some prosecutor who's going to look at it and assume that everything's perfect mm -hmm. and of course they've never allowed us to have the device we are not giving up obviously in getting one of these uh and i can tell you we're you know from our perspective you should know that we're pretty comfortable defending all of these cases without the devices but there is a leg up we get when we have them mm -hmm. it's not like we're not going to succeed in the cases without them 
Well, uh, we but might not succeed. I mean, there's no guarantees, Paul. Well, my point is that the I don't the, know. The law society sometimes, requires us to say that. Sometimes <laughs> the, the having the technology puts us over the edge. Sometimes it helps us. I mean, look how much we've learned with moving radar since we bought the moving radar. Yep. Oh yeah. So <laughs> I was uh, having I was having a conversation with the prosecutor today while I was doing a trial about um, impaired driving cases, and she said, you know, there's really not that many lawyers out there that are impaired driving lawyers. We were talking about somebody who didn't have an impaired driving lawyer and now does and why that was a good thing for the accused person. Well, there's people who are very skilled in their particular area of practice. Yep. Uh, and there are people who do a lot of impaired driving cases and they're particularly skilled in that area of practice. And, Literally uh, that one thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm really good I, at well, one that's thing. thing. That's the thing. I, you know, I concede there's lots of things I don't know about. I gave an interview today on uh, Global about this um, plot of land that was given to the District of West Vancouver by a couple in their will uh, with the express uh, desire, or the express instructions rather, that it be made into a park, just a local park. And I, I thought I was willing to talk to Global about that, but then they started asking me about the the authority of the Attorney General to sue the District of West Vancouver. And then I thought, at that point, I really am a drunk driving lawyer. I think, not that I know anything about this and can't answer the question, but I, I think it probably comes from the Attorney General's relationship to the public guardian and trustee. That would make sense to me. Um, but and I also think, the, the land conservatories. Well, I also think that um, an interested party could do it uh, under those circumstances too because it was intended for, uh, the, you know, the, the express intention in the will was to make this into a park and the city is not, or the municipality is not following through on the expressed intention. And I think anyone could claim standing yes. to compel them to I'll do it. I'll tell you two reasons why the Attorney General would have standing to do it. First of all, there's a tax um, revenue, a provincial tax revenue issue there. If the property is bequeathed for a charitable purpose, like creating a park, the provincial government doesn't get any tax benefit from it. But they've been renting it out. They've been renting it out. Yeah. See, and they're not getting any tax benefit from that rent. So they have standing by virtue of that. And then secondly, in judicial review, the rule in relation to standing is that anyone who is affected by a decision made by a, a statutory decision maker has standing to bring a judicial review and the attorney general um by virtue of being the province's lawyer is affected by any decision made uh, regarding any land in the province period because it's all like part of the province there's probably some piece of legislation that's like the beneficiary of beneficiary of, of also, a donation of land uh legislation and it probably says the attorney general of BC can yeah, <laughs> sue any municipal. And, and the judicial review procedure act says that the attorney general is a party to any judicial review. Well, there Just you go. Just anyone. There you go. <laughs> Including ones they initiate. So they initiated it. But, yeah. um, I, I gave an interview about it just because I mean, obviously the, the, uh, instructions in the will have to be followed and the city is near the municipality was flagrantly not following through and there's no certainty for people who are going to go in and think about donating their land upon their death or anything else upon their death if they're not following through. And sure. I know that those matters get to court fairly regularly where it's a, you know, like 
you know, John donates his, uh, his complete collection of Electrolux uh, vacuum cleaners to the city for their museum and expects them all to be on display. And, the, yeah. you know, the city can't do that. Or my incredibly complex will with my multiple trusts. Exactly. That are probably void. <laughs> probably all void. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't care. We've departed uh, from driving yeah, law. Yeah, we have. But, and we need uh, to get back on the driving law train because we have more important things to talk about kay. besides the Sotoxa. Okay. Did you read Bowen Ma's tweet? If you remember, Bowen Ma was Back a, to the government. You've got yes. another tie-in. I do, yes. Bowen, Bowen Ma, a uh, member of the Legislative Assembly. Um, was one of your was, famous guests on the show. Yeah. She chaired the ride-sharing committee um, in the legislature and was part of the driving force behind the decision to require Class 4 licenses for ride-sharing drivers. Uber, Lyft, whatever we end Cater. up with, Cater, which is basically just the taxi companies. So the, um, for those of you who are outside of the province and don't know the story, of course, we are one of the rare holdouts without any Uber. Um, and rare it's holdouts. irritating. We're like wild, wild west. The, well, we're not the wild, wild west. We're overly governed, I think many people would say, because we have our public insurance company. And the public insurance company is thinking about it. And then the, you know, we've got a, uh, governments that are concerned about workplace conditions, uh, and working hours and so forth. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and whether or not they are employees or contractors, etc. So the government has been reluctant in BC to accept Uber. And of course, we also recognize that we have taxis, uh, not enough taxis, never enough taxis, uh, but that we have the taxi industry and Uber is very hard on the taxi industry. Uber and Rideshare are coming, but now that they're coming in September, the government has announced that you can't just drive with a regular old license. You've got to get a special license called a Class 4. And the government has taken some heat for this. Uh, but this tweet this week, I don't know, Kyla, are you just finding it? Yeah, I was just pulling it up on my phone. But I'm trying to remember, when they came out with the Class 4 license requirement, was I like, fuck yeah or fuck no? I remember being very... It's typical that you can't opinion. keep your keep your opinion straight on those things. Well, can you? Uh, information is constantly coming in. I think. Um, I think I supported it. I think you did support it, but who knows? I know I did support it, um, and um, as I've said before, the only thing that's really holding up Uber is the uh, YVR Airport uh, getting their um, construction done on their new parking. Uh, drop off and pick up facilities because really I think that's the thing that's holding it all up and the moment that it's ready the government will say oh okay yeah we've made a decision we're ready to go yep anyway so all these people were outraged at the class four license decision we know about that and one of the things that they were outraged about it was that there's no marked safety difference between class four and class five drivers turns out they were wrong. Well, there's a safety dis- difference in the in the numbers. So, yes. I mean, in the statistics show that there is a safety difference. Is there a big safety difference in the in the um, instruction and training? Anyway, what do the numbers say? So, Class Five drivers in 2016 had 13% more accidents than Class Four drivers uh, in 2015. The difference was uh, 17% more crashes, 45% more 
in 2014. So at least class five drivers are getting better, but I mean, God. I know, but think about think about all of the other things that are playing in there. You know, first of all, you're driving as a class four. Chances are you're driving a vehicle that's got some sort of lettering, labeling, something on it. Yeah. You are also, um, you know, that is your job is driving. So you're going to pay closer attention to your job driving. You're going to be less likely to be making, uh, you know, a bunch of calls. I mean, I've been in taxis where there's been lots of distracted taxis. I disagree with you that the more you drive, the more attention you pay. I think as with anything, you get into that autonomous brain thing. But there are people who take driving, they're driving as a job very seriously, and they really focus on it. There are people like that. Sure. I don't talk to them in the course of my work. No, that's because they don't get tickets and they don't get accidents and so they're not calling you. They need to pay less attention. Um, No, so, uh, you know, my point is those those numbers can come from all sorts of different things. I mean, they've actually tracked that difference. Um, So for the average class five driver in BC. Class five. Yes, the class five. I'm hungry. I haven't eaten yet today. Um... The average class five driver in British Columbia drives between 13 and 15,000 kilometers a year, but a commercial taxi driver with a class four license drives 75,000 kilometers a year. There you go. So, so like it's a driving experience. They're, they're, they're that much more experienced from their driving. That much more experience, and, but also that many more opportunities that, for collisions. Well, I'd like to talk about that someday. Um... Okay, first I want to focus on the that much more experienced driving. So maybe that suggests that if you're doing it as a hobby, you're not that safe. Okay, so mm-hmm. there's that. Um, but we get people who fairly regularly come in and they're professional drivers and they've got a ticket and it's like their third ticket in three years. There's some bad repercussions for it. Something's going on and we have to address it. And they will tell us, well, you know, come on, I put on like uh, 86,000 kilometers a year where the average person puts on 18,000. And you're sitting there thinking to yourself, yeah, I know there's something to that. But then when you write to explain or you try and stand up in court for that person, the response is always, well, if he's a professional driver who puts on 86,000 kilometers a year, he should know better. But the thing is, there is a point, though. You are dealing with so many different, such a variety of circumstances and that many more chances for something to go wrong, for you to time something incorrectly, for you to, you know, miss a vehicle that's coming at you until it's a little bit too late or something like that. For you to go 40 over down Highway 1. Exactly. (laughs) It is that many more opportunities for those things to happen. So it, 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 there is a bit of a numbers and odds game there. Um, you know, you and I deal with a large volume mm-hmm. of files uh, and, you know, we succeed a lot. And so you could say that we've had more successes probably than a lot of other lawyers, but we also have losses. Um, and so maybe we have more losses than a bunch of other lawyers in certain things. Right, volume um, and volume. And it's a, an issue of volume. I get it. But, you know, for us, it's, we like the fact, just to the uh, audience listening tonight, uh, we like the fact that, um, you know, the more we do, the better we are, the better we are, the, you know, the greater the success we can get for our clients. Yes, I agree. So anyway, that, uh, just that data was very interesting. Um, And I, I, if I was in support of class four before, and I think I was, 
I still am now. <laughs> Somebody's um, going to pull that up. Yeah, somebody will, like, pull up the clip or and, the... like, Goddamn one of hypocrite. my Twitter trolls. Because unlike you, I'm not liberal with the block button. I think I've blocked, like, one person on Twitter. I don't know why you don't block people. Every one yeah, of the people I blocked, all I do is I go to their, I look at their, uh, at their Twitter feed, and then I find there's almost always some racist mega thing in there. And I'm like, okay. Here's, I can block them. Here's my, my actually, you want to know my real reason why I don't block the trolls, why I continue to follow the crazy racist mega people that somehow I've followed in the past, probably before they went crazy racist mega or whatever, is because if you cater your social media to conform to your views, if you only follow people who share the same opinion as you and who like you, then your social media, based on the algorithms, becomes an echo chamber for those views. And I think it's appropriate to expose myself to the viewpoints of other individuals, A, so I can remind myself that there's still backwards-thinking losers like that in the world, and that not everybody is as enlightened and informed to think that the color of your skin doesn't have any bearing on anything about who you are as a person, and that's important to me. I don't know. I just, I don't want a, an echo chamber um, to be my Twitter. I've been yeah. on this earth almost two decades longer than you. And as a consequence, I don't feel that I need to read the mega hat wearing tweets I see. You just, so I block them. The way you said that just gave me flashbacks to that scene in the Twin Peaks reboot where the guy comes in and kills all the people in the radio booth. And then he's like, this is the water. This and is this is the well. well. Drink full and descend. The, the horse, horse is, is the, the white of the, the eyes and, and the, the darkness dark within. within. Yeah. Um, you just like gave me flashbacks to that. So um, anyway. Okay. Uh, this week, speaking of outrage, um, there was outrage over Bowen Ma's tweet. There was outrage over um, the Abbott Sotoxa. Third outrage of the week, um, a man, uh, I guess about a year ago, a little under a year ago, was killed um, in Vancouver by another man. Um, the deceased was riding his bicycle and the... Uh, driver of a vehicle opened his door. Such a tragic thing when this happens. Very it's sad. so awful. But and it's and it sounds like it's almost funny. Doring. 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 Yeah. yeah. Mm, Doring a cyclist. But, yeah, I've been. Yeah. Kills him. I've been a cyclist and I've nearly been in that situation. And I was parked in front of my house, and opened my door, and I almost took out someone I know. In the same situation, was riding along and had to swerve to avoid me. There are also times, though, where cyclists get themselves doored. I once had uh, a boyfriend in law school who had a Chevy Cavalier, a red Chevy Cavalier, and he was um, lawfully in an intersection, proceeding straight through the intersection, and a cyclist just went through a stop sign and drove right into his door. And then had the audacity to scream. Well, that's the side. That's not the door opening. That's, you no, know. No, he doored himself. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, I've defended bike cases, too, where people on bikes run red lights or run stop signs or what have you because they, there's this belief in, when you get on a bicycle, many people seem to believe that they're ethically uh, better than everybody else and therefore they don't have to abide by the rules. I I'm know protecting I, the environment. I, I have friends who have expressed the same feeling and I know I felt that way, too. 
yeah. when I've been on my bike. Um, but the, um, you know, opening a door, uh, an open, a door opening is such a dangerous thing for a cyclist. Um, but sure. Yeah. Let's talk about what happened, I guess. So what happened? There was a year-long police investigation and ultimately uh, Crown Council, in conjunction with the police, decided that uh, they would uh, lay a charge for unsafe opening of a door, which is a Motor Vehicle Act offense, and which carries with it an indicated penalty of $81. No points. What else are they going to do? What, there's nothing else they can do. Like, what can they do? It's not a 144. It's not, there's no driving. Not, not a careless driving. It's no. not careless driving. It's not even driving without reasonable consideration. Because he's not driving. And, uh, yeah, um, I mean, maybe you could make an argument that he's in care and control and he carelessly opens the door, but you can't have a drive without reasonable consideration that encompasses conduct already specifically defined in the act. So you, that wouldn't a dangerous be dangerous operation charge. of a motor vehicle. It's not dangerous. Is it a marked departure from the standard of a reasonable person? How many times in your life have you opened the door of your vehicle without looking behind you first? Most times. Exactly. You, me, but everyone else. Most times I'm in my driveway. It doesn't matter. You know, it's, it's a, it, you know, we've talked about this before, the difference between um, like a motor vehicle act offense and the criminal code offense of dangerous driving. And it's that spectrum of mental uh, intent um, characterized from momentary negligence to a marked departure. And this is on the low, 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 low end of momentary negligence. No, I agree. Uh, you know, I agree, and I, I haven't, you know, I'm not, I, I wish there was another solution that would be more satisfactory to the family of the deceased. There is. It's called ICBC. I know. That's um, what the civil process is for. But I know a lot of people are upset about the $81 fine. But what? To what end? What What is fining him maximum fine under the Offense Act? Uh, which technically you can't impose for a ticket where the indicated penalty is set out in the regulations. But if you want to, uh, you know, skirt the law and do that anyway, which many people do. does happen. Um, happens all the time. Some regularity. Usually on joint submissions. <clears throat> but if you want to do that and, Im you know, on a violation ticket and impose the maximum fine possible, it's $2,000. So, uh, I'm sorry... Is the public really going to be satisfied? They're not, you know, well, to us, this life is worth more than $81, but it's not worth worth more than 2000 I guess I would back up and, you know, say, okay, it's an offense. Yeah. Um, and the person has been charged with the offense and ticketed for the offense. And there are a lot of things that we do that could cause egregious harm or death to another individual that are not offenses. Um that wouldn't be ticketable, um, you know, that are, are simple mistakes. I mean, you could be walking along the, the, uh, the bike route and stop to tie your shoe or something like that, or lean over to pick over up a, a can that you're going to clean up and the cyclist swerves to miss you and hits a post and dies. I could invite you over to my house for dinner and take out a can of tomato sauce that I've had in the back of my cupboard for a little bit too long and feed you botulism tomatoes. Wouldn't know it. And you could die. Remind me not to come over. 
for any <laughs> not tomato, for you. tomato thing. Um, I'm just saying <clears throat> there are lots of ways that you can accidentally kill people. Yeah, okay. So I'll look at, for the, at it from that perspective. But uh, I, I understand the families and the cyclist communities concern about that. Right, but... I, I, I would say that this is a great opportunity, though, to have a discussion... About, about how the law could change? About the danger of opening your door without looking. And in the Netherlands, uh, part of the training, you know, driver training, is that you open your door um, with your right hand. So you don't open it with your left hand. You lean across with your right hand in order to look out. And it seems like not a bad idea. I mean, in usually I'm like balancing my my cell phone, my briefcase. Yeah. Pepper spray, whatever and else everything. I've got, a fire um, extinguisher. Yeah, your your illegal firecrackers, your your kilo of cocaine. No, there's nothing. You said illegal. pepper spray, so I'm well. Just sometimes, thinking you're sometimes I'm. The law. Well, most of the time I'm up in the woods. Right. So. So it's for bear protection. Yeah. Specifically. Exactly. Well, I don't think you're gonna door a cyclist up in the woods. Well, you never know. <laughs> the point um, you make is a good one. It is a ground for complete failure. Of your driver's license exam, in-car examination, if during, speaking of people who have to get their class fours, this will come up on your driving exam. You will have to, uh, at some point, stop your vehicle and open the door. And if you do not check behind you, check your mirrors and shoulder check before you open the door, automatic fail. Which brings us to the need for sliding doors. No. Like on minivans. That's not going to be our topic. Is that going to be our next topic? <laughs> or like doors like on the DeLorean. <clears throat> Those are just as or dangerous. Like so you, can, you can be doored that way. Gullwing doors. Absolutely. I don't know. I don't, I've never had a Lamborghini or a DeLorean. I drove a Lamborghini Countach. It wasn't particularly pleasant to get in and out of. All right. So it is time to shift away from that. Do we have a... And talk about something a little bit more lighthearted to end this podcast on a happy note. So your favorite moment of the week. Really the only reason you keep coming back. The ridiculous driver of the week. Who is it? Who is it? And boy, howdy, do I have a good one for you from Guthrie, Oklahoma. Last week we went to Australia. This week I'm You didn't do an Australian accent. You just did a drawl. You just did a drawl. You want to play nicey spoony? I can't do an Australian a, accent. You just did a. That's from The Simpsons. Nicey spoony. I know. Well, that's like my my cultural references. I also, if I want to talk in an Irish accent, first I have to say something that like the little Lucky Charms leprechaun would say, and then I can speak in. I don't want to hear it. Accent. I don't want to hear it. Was it you did it I in the pirate? You did it in the pirate videos. No, that was a pirate accent. Pirate Irish accent is what you had. There are Irish pirates, Paul. I'm sure there are. Were. Um. You don't think there still are? Um, so Guthrie, Oklahoma. Two people pulled over by police. Oh, 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 yes. oh, oh, yes. You know the this one I'm one talking I know. about. <laughs> this, this case gets better. So police are conducting what they think is basically a routine traffic stop of a stolen car. Like, oh, look, there's a car that's been reported stolen. We'll pull them over and arrest them for stealing the car and carry on with our day. A standard thing. Yeah. In Oklahoma. Um, then, as they're uh, as they're looking, uh, they see that the tag is expired. That Mr. Jennings, who's driving, doesn't have a um, 
driver's license. So now they're investigating. Well, not one of those fancy ones from the DMV. He's got a driver's license, but it's homemade. Yeah. Um, So now it's like a no DL offense. And then they look to the passenger seat where his passenger, Miss Rivera, is sitting. And in the back seat, there's a rattlesnake. Good. In a terrarium. Good. Uh, Then Mr. Jennings decides that now is a good time to tell the police that in addition to the rattlesnake and the no license and the stolen car and the prohibited driving, um, the no insurance, he's also got a handgun in the console. So rattlesnake, stolen vehicle, firearm, somebody under arrest. But that's not. I mean, the handgun in the console is hardly a, a thing in Oklahoma. Well, it gets better, Paul. It wouldn't be a ridiculous driver of the week with just a snake just and a, a gun. Next next to the handgun was an open bottle of Kentucky Deluxe liquor. Yeah. Yeah, makes I'm, sense. I'm sure we've had that file. Sure. And then to top it all off, they searched the vehicle at this point because, I mean, you'd be negligent not to. Of and course. Speaking of the DeLorean, they found... <laughs> A canister of radioactive powdered uranium. Oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, those actually, that's really, I mean, we're talking ionizing radiation. Those police officers should have been, like, grabbing those people and running. Yeah. And getting a Geiger counter and coming back. Yep. What have they been exposed to? I mean, At at this point in time, the police don't even know what to charge them for with the uranium. Where did they get it? Well, there are so many questions here. Where did they get it? And what were they going to do with it? They've got liquor, uranium, and a rattlesnake. And a handgun. Well, I don't care about the handgun. This is the start of a really good comic book series. Well, I I tweeted that it sounded like a Coen Brothers film. Um, uh, And lots of people like my tweet. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. They thought it was funny. Um, But the, uh, the, you think about, like I'm thinking now that you're telling me about the uranium, I was wondering, I thought it was maybe just like, you know, somebody who had one of those illuminated uh, watch faces that had radioactive material in it, like my dad used to have when I was a kid. No. But, you know, if they've got some ionizing radiation there, then everybody's been exposed to it and everybody should probably be headed for decontamination. Maybe they want Did they know what they had? I have no idea. Oh, my God. Just the idea. The idea of, like, yeah, it's just a routine traffic stop. Rattlestick, uranium, gun, liquor. Well, and this brings me to the need for the Geiger counter that I keep in my office. Oh, my God. Yeah. This is, like, one of the first days I worked for you. The things you learn working for Paul Doroshenko, like how to use a Geiger counter. Part of your articles at Acumen Law Corporation. I don't know that you ever used it. The battery was dead. Did you? No. Yeah, because we used, I think, didn't we use the Geiger counter at some point after the mercury spill? No, no, we didn't use the Geiger counter for that. But I was showing you on a smoke detector that it was picking up the smoke detector. I remember you waving it over something. Yeah, no, I was waving something over it. Oh, yeah. I just, I remember the action and the Geiger counter. I thank Dave Dave Hermanutz, my friend, for getting me that Geiger counter. I don't know where he got it, but he's... You know, used enough of them over the course of Maybe his life. Maybe he got it the same place that uh, Stephen Jennings got his uranium. Who knows? Um, well, there's some uh, long history of fascinating stories of radioactive material ending up in the wrong hands of people. And this is uh, one more. This is chapter uh, 26 in that book. Um, but his driving was okay. Yeah. So does he really 
fall into the category of ridiculous driver of the week? Well, I mean, he had the uranium. And maybe he just didn't have time yet to get up to 88 miles per hour. I will tell you. you knew that was coming. I will tell you, as I heard about the snake, that when I was 17 years old, I was wandering around a park in Edmonton, and I caught a garter snake. And I put it in a box, and I had it in my car. And later that day, I had an accident. I had a car accident, and I badly damaged my car. And the snake was still in the box. And I had to get across town in order to get to that snake to get it out of the box because I was worried about the snake in the box. Snake in the box. I will tell you. That will not be a restaurant chain at my, any time. My snake in a box story. When I was a child, as you know, I grew up in the middle of the woods and kind of lived like Tarzan for the first 15 years of my life. And um, used to catch a lot of snakes. And there was never a problem with bringing them into the house until one day uh, we put the snake in a bucket, big long garter snake that we caught, put it in a bucket, brought it in the house, promptly forgot about it, as children do. My mom comes home and sees this empty bucket in the middle of the floor in the basement and says to my sister, hey, Nikita, why is that bucket there? Nikita says, oh, well, there's a snake in it. And no, there isn't. No. <laughs> there's no snake. Mom says, there's, there's no snake. Nikita comes over and goes, oh, I guess he went home. <laughs> so <laughs> time marches on. <laughs> we all assume the snake went home until one day my mom is vacuuming and she moves a piece of furniture. Poor little snake. And the snake has been trapped underneath the foot of the desk in our basement for that whole time. And my mom had to, like, free the snake. She was so mad. So we were never allowed to bring snakes into the house again. Probably a good idea. Yeah. And probably we're also not uh, permitted to bring radioactive material into the house. I haven't specifically been prohibited. So <laughs> in the absence of a rule. Talk to your parents about <laughs> yeah. that one. All right. Well, if you have any questions about bringing radioactive material in your vehicle or any other driving law-related law issues, or you want to read our recent blog post on the Abbott Sotoxa, check us out online at VancouverCriminalLaw.com. Or uh, give us a call, 604-685-8889, and tune in next week for another exciting episode of Driving Law, where we will speak to Vincent Gogolak from the BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association about privacy law and motor vehicle law. Did you know they intersect? They do. (laughs) 